Welcome to The Founders. This is the podcast where we dig into the startup stories of some of the most exciting and innovative businesses by speaking to the founders themselves. I'm Alex. And I'm Joe. And in this episode, we're speaking to the founders of Oppo Brothers, Harry and Charlie Twillier. Oppo Brothers is a unique ice cream brand whose aim is to make indulgence healthier by offering 60% lower calories than standard ice cream without compromising on taste. So what were you keen to find out about Harry and Charlie? They they had quite a unique founding story. You'll hear it in a minute. It's one of the first things that we talk about. But they basically took a trip that involved a world record attempt. They ended up having to scavenge for food. And as well, I think it took a lot of, I don't want to say fake it till you make it, but they, they basically pulled a lot of strings to pull this trip together. It was a very, very interesting story. Yeah, um, white, and white lies. Exactly. And it doesn't exactly translate into ice cream, but it's interesting to hear how they eventually get there. Well, it was interesting to hear about how Charlie initially was very, very keen on getting this going and had this tremendous belief in the business. But Harry at the time was employed and he was was doing well for himself. So there was a bit of a mission to convince Harry to get on board. And it was interesting to hear about uh, Charlie talking about that being one of the biggest days for him. Also, after they'd founded the business, they'd been asked to go on Dragon's Den three times before they eventually said yes. So it was interesting hearing about what finally made them decide that it was going to be worth it. And it might not be what you'd have expected either, which was quite interesting. No. Just as a final point from me about what business owners will probably get from this conversation, they made a strong point that you don't always have to go down traditional channels or traditional methods to be able to get to the, the end goal that you want or to make a business happen. There's a story that they touch on about how they managed to get in touch with the buyer at Waitrose. And uh, I don't want to spoil it, so I'm not going to dive all details, but... They definitely weren't sent it from someone at Waitrose um, in the way that you would typically go about get, uh, attaining a number from someone at Waitrose. So I'll leave it at that. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. This is Harry and Charlie Twillier, the founders of Oppo Brothers. Harry, Charlie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much for having us. It's great to be here. Before we start talking about Oppo Brothers, I was hoping that you could give me some background into both of your lives. And I was hoping that you could start with a trip to Brazil that you guys took for a reason that a lot of people might not expect. Yeah, absolutely. So take it back to what I was 2011. I just left whilst leaving university, about to leave university. Um, Harry already left. Harry's three and a half years older than me, the older brother. And we had done a lot of traveling together, um, together and apart until that, uh, at that point. Before joining the real world, uh, I, said, I remember one of us said to the other, um, Let, let's do one last, let's do a bit of a more mental trip, um, a big blowout. And so we both loved windsurfing. And a lot of our trips before that until that point had been um, to go windsurfing, uh, particularly around the Middle East. We said, let's go windsurfing in the windiest place in the world at that time of year, in July, August. Conveniently, it happened to be northeast coast of Brazil. Um, so we're, we're looking forward to that. Um, the warmth, the nice sea, and everything you imagine about Brazil. But then we realized the nearest airport would be about a thousand kilometers away from this. At the time, it's bigger now, but from the, at the time, a, a small fishing village, um, which all the windsurfing magazines were, were going mental about, saying how incredible it was. So we started to look for methods of transport, you know, how we could travel a thousand kilometers um, up a super remote, actually it was, it was a stretch of beach from Natal, um, which is on the coast um, further south of, of Jericoara, where we wanted to go windsurfing. And so we 
Uh, we looked at various methods of transport, Harry looked at land yachting, um, I, I was more suggestive of, of running the distance, Harry then looked at uh, cycling with really fat tyres. I think it's worth saying that most most people, you know, just sort of took a jeep or like, you know, like a taxi and we like to make life hard for ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know, you look back at it and you see quite an easier way we could have done this, but anyway. So I, I was a, a university student at the time, so I spent too long often on YouTube uh, down, the, down the, the rabbit holes and a video popped up. Um, with a couple of blokes kite buggying and these were like a, a, a go-kart with wheels about the size of your car tire no brakes no seat belt no steering wheel you steer with your feet but powered and pulled along by these pretty big kites uh, and they're flying up and down sand dunes so i remember i sent the link to harry and I said harry up that that's what we're going to do that is how we're going to travel the distance um, from the town to jillicacuada and, and and get to the windsurfing destination harry i remember you replied pretty much instantly saying not a chance about 10 minutes later, you said, actually. And then we, we sent it to our parents um, and they did definitely more of the former answer. And so Harry contacted a kite manufacturer. So this is our idea. What do you think? Is it possible? Would you help us out? And they had a series of questions for us, which started typically with, with um, have you ever done this before? We said, no. Do you speak Portuguese? No. Have you got a support team following you? No. Have you got um, all the resources that you need with, with medical teams, with with money, with, with funding, all that kind of stuff to get there. We said, no, we haven't got, haven't got jackal. And they said, well, you're mental. Uh, we're not going to support you at all. This would be like learning to swim by swimming the channel. But being two 20-something blokes with a bit of an ego, all we did was we called another manufacturer, changed our story considerably, were suddenly fluent in Portuguese, and of course we'd kite buggy before. The fact I was on crutches from a mountain bike accident was immaterial. We And they said, yes, let's go for it. That sounds awesome. We'll sponsor you. So 13, Harry negotiated 13 kites to come over from Holland. Uh, we got buggies bespoke built for us in New Zealand. We had New Balance sponsoring our trip. Everything down to Under Armour boxes. You know, we, we were students, so we had to really milk it. That was your bit of detail, Charlie. Yeah, getting the boxes and the <laughs> socks. the only bit I managed to do. How we could show that <laughs> off on any <laughs> marketing <laughs> material, I don't know. But <laughs> we, we raised, mon- raised money for a homeless charity as well. Um, so it was, uh, yes, but there's, there's obviously lots of parallels here to to creating a business, which is um, why we're spending so long <laughs> talking about kite bugging. So we uh, this this thing snowballed out of control. Uh, we only wanted to go windsurfing, but we were suddenly um, on a sponsored expedition in Brazil on the front cover of Parakite magazines and, and we on the radio and had this website. And uh, we got to Brazil. We started to build these buggies. We started to, to get going. I think about two weeks in, we then ran out of food. Um, and we hadn't actually travelled that far at all. It was probably a couple hundred K or something. To, to get the record and to get the distance, we had to travel about 35 miles a day. But because we were so crap at kiting, we often would ditch the kites into the trees or into the cliffs, or we wouldn't be able to kite because um, there wouldn't be enough wind and we weren't good enough to kite regardless of wind conditions and all that kind of stuff. And quite a lot of it was... Um... Google Maps sort of shows a lovely long beach, but then you zoom in. We didn't really zoom in enough, and there's there's a lot of mangrove swamps. And so we met some locals, and this is where we can finally get into the ice cream. I will get there in a minute. We met some locals, uh, but in our broken Portuguese, we spoke to these fishermen and asked what we could eat as we carried along the coastline. What what can we find that's going to fuel this the rest of this trip? And they showed us various things, but mainly acai. But it's this kind of smoothie in a bowl, and it tastes amazing and it fueled us for the rest of the expedition we didn't really think an awful lot of it we got to the end we got to jerry we windsurfed we came home 
Harry went back to your day job, didn't you? As a um, were you race logic at the time, Harry? Yeah, I was. Uh, I was in marketing, a uh, um, marketing manager at automotive electronics company, and then uh, on a joint venture with with Google in online education. So two very different jobs, um, but uh, yeah, and they were better jobs than um, what Charlie was proposing, which was trying to make ice cream healthy, which sounded absolutely impossible. And where was the money in that? <laughs> Well, when we came back, Harry went back to his day job. I went to mine, which was a grad scheme. Didn't enjoy it at all. Um, I was pained with how slow so many um, stages of bureaucracy and process to get anything signed off. And we'd had this idea out there of, hang on, why can't the most indulgent food be healthy? Why why is Mars bar not as good as an apple? Like, actually, why? And we all just, you know, back then just kind of, Understood it as the status quo. Well, of course, Mars bar's not healthy. It's a Mars bar. It tastes great. Well, yeah, but why? Why can't we actually change that up and, and make the most indulgent food good for us, or certainly better than it is at the moment? And we looked at various, you know, other industries, uh, banking, tech, travel, um, cars, whatever. The last 50 years, they had exponentially developed into, to, to morph into totally different industries. Obviously, they were before different, totally different products, totally different way of, of thinking. But in food, we were less healthy. We're much better now. But 10 years ago, we were less healthy than we were 50 years ago. So we'd gone backwards. Food had gone backwards in that case. And, you know, why do we eat food? It's, it's for fuel and it's for its enjoyment. Well, if it's not really hitting both of those things, then there's something wrong, drastically wrong, um, as in both of those things in one go and one product. So I quit my job at Diageo and, unknown to Harry, moved onto his sofa uh, and then so surfed around London uh, once I should pro- realised I should probably give him some space back and was trying to create a, an ice cream that was just as indulgent as traditional regular ice cream. You know, ideally could stand up next to Haagen-Dazs in, ta- in a blind taste test, yet was fewer calories than an apple, a third of the sugar of an apple, natural, um, economical, not too expensive, etc. Um, and, and so that was a two and a half year process. Harry, I managed to convince him to come on board. And then we launched in, it was October 2014, wasn't it, Harry? Straight into Waitress and Ocado. It is an exciting and engaging story and a massive contrast from the typical founder story that you would hear. That's certainly not one that every founder has to tell. And so what I wanted to ask was, you obviously managed to fund that trip by acquiring various different sponsors to effectively finance the trip in various different ways. Where did you find the confidence to do that? Because there's a lot of people that aspire to travel and there's a lot of people that aspire to do do lots of different things in terms of adventure, but not a lot of them would call up all of these different companies and ask them to effectively pay for it. Where did you find the confidence to do that? Is it is it something that you had experience doing in the past? Yeah, not not really. I mean, I guess it was because we felt that we had a story to tell in terms of a manufacturer or a partner or a sponsor of ours benefiting from the PR and the, there was the charity angle and there was something, it was just something different. It was an unofficial world record um, and therefore it, it wasn't sort of our confidence. It was us thinking, well, we could be a vehicle to doing something cool uh, and being part of something cool. And um, we obviously paid for the flights and all the rest of it ourselves. It was it was the gear that we really benefited from. So it was kite manufacturers then being, you know, their logos being everywhere and us sort of promising them certain amounts of um, exposure to, to the channels we were able to generate, really. 
Yeah, that's right. We gave all the kit back at the end, so hopefully didn't cost anyone too much money. Not the pants, though. Not the pants. Um, or the shoes, they've definitely been worn in. Um, I'm still wearing those. And we... <laughs> the thing is, he actually is. I've seen them. And then, and also a good amount of naivety as well. Not really realising how business worked and how, how much this kind of thing can cost people. Uh, and that, should we say, intelligent naivety, uh, which I did a TED Talk on, actually, uh, was was something that stayed with us um, for, for quite a few, well, actually, t- still until today, um, the naivety bit. But it gave us a, a level of confidence to, to to ask questions, but in such a way that we were really engaging and, and requesting and genuinely needing people to educate us. Um, and I think that's partly how we got the, uh, the level of support, very kind support that we did from quite a lot of people. Talking about uh, the start of Oppo Brothers, the development of the business, how you actually began what are the first few steps that you take when you start something out like that asking a ton of questions obviously not you know without annoying people but um but working incredibly same with how we got the sponsorship it's just about um working blimmin hard to give people as much value as you we possibly possibly could we did a ton of legwork for it um and, and worked very hard such that it was genuinely hopefully going to be a good decision for, for those people to sponsor us and i think that that continues through all the way as well when you've got not a lot to add to answer your question around setting up the company. Let's say to a factory, when you set up, you're often asking more for things than you, from people than, than maybe you can offer back. We were certainly in that situation. Go to a factory uh, and, and ask them to, to manufacture a certain amount of liquid. You know, they would laugh at us because it was it was it was so small it wasn't even it wouldn't even fit in their pipes. Um, the, the amount of liquid, let alone in the vat, you know, if you, if you see what I mean, from a vat obviously being pumped to, to the freezer, it would just be in the pipe in between the vat and the freezer. It wouldn't actually uh, fill anything up. So really not worth it anybody's time. But working incredibly hard to think of something from someone else's point of view such that you can add value to them, I think is is the only way that you can uh, can give back and then and then make it worthwhile for someone to, to help you out. How did you go, for, though, from an idea to getting your first tub together, for example, you know, you, you said you, you're asking a ton of questions from manufacturers, maybe asking um, more from them than maybe you can offer back. How did you find a manufacturer? How did you know where to start looking? You know, these are all questions that I think if you've never started a business before, it seems impossible to even get that information. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to say faking it because that's not the case. You've got to have such a lot of belief. I think it's about having a vision and sharing that vision with with other people and for us what was necessary in creating an ice cream was having a good brand uh, and that, that that explained what was inside the tub and having the the tubs themselves and all of the ingredients and the production um, and financing it as well and a lot of it was was explaining that vision to others and sort of saying that look we've actually already got this set up we've got a factory lined up uh, we've got some some conversations with buyers who say that they want this product and then to the factory it's saying look we've got this this brand and and it's it's kind of you know bringing everyone together to create a, a reality that's not not quite there yet it does require a, a leap of faith and and it's about being lucky with the people that you're talking to and as charlie said um trying to provide them with some value and interest and making sure that people are enjoying the journey with you that you're not just asking favours of everyone all the time, that there's some level of uh, of ownership that they might have in the overall project as well. Yeah, absolutely, H. You, you just reminded me of a story. Um, we, we knew we needed a brand, but, you know, so packaging, a uh, name, um, the entire uh, persona of, of what we were trying to 
to, to create. And so we went up to a, to a branding agency, asked for their help. And they said, well, okay, this is how much it's going to cost. I went down at one point to £1.5p in my bank account. Um, had nothing financially to give them. So again, it was going back to, well, what can we give them? And you know, when you're starting up, you cannot think about the perspective from a Goliath, from a large company, because you're not. And I think frequently that's a mistake that, that many people make is accept the, the status quo and accept what, what you're being asked, what's buying up being asked of you um, and maybe what you've done in other jobs or, or roles you've had before, which in this case would be, well, yeah, of course you should pay someone. Well, actually, what else can you offer them that somebody who is in a position to pay can't, can't offer them? Well, we could give them in this instance. So I you know, set about asking them a load of questions and, and luckily they answered them because they were personal to their business and, uh, and realized that actually what they really wanted in their business was uh, some design awards. And it was slightly harder for them to get those awards with the larger companies because the larger companies would have their own creative directors and, and their own team working on something. Uh, and it was a bit of a push and pull. And the design agency often couldn't uh, give themselves entire credit for projects and have carte blanche to do what they thought best. Well, I thought, well, that's blimmin' obvious. You know a hell of a lot more than I do. So of course, I'm. You know, we want to to, to give you the opportunity to do what you think's best. So what we eventually agreed was that we would give them ten percent of our net profit for three years after the project, which happened to be zero. Um, but they knew that it was just in case things really took off um, mentally. But also, they had an entire cup launch, and I would try and support as much as I could in terms of uh, submitting their proposals for design awards. Uh, sorry, I say I because Harry was still at this point uh, in a full-time job uh, for another few months. Uh, and so they accepted that. So we got the brand entirely for free. Uh, in fact, they went further and gave uh, gave me a desk in their office. Uh, and little did they know, I was also sleeping there every night because at one particular time because it took too long to go back. Um, and I had nowhere else to go as well. Uh, and they had showers in the kitchen there. So what more did I need? Uh, so I was amazing. Um, flat let's call it uh, they call it an office i call it a flat um they called you a squatter Belfast. <laughs> um, but again it's like well yeah what well, how can you make a relationship work incredibly well they just thought i was the last person in and the first person out although well, i think that was also a really big learning as well because the brand that was created did did win an award but it also we're not mentioning the agency it, it did not sell on shelf and sometimes as the the people that are at the coalface and you know speaking to consumers and buyers and figuring out you know charlie and and then latterly me knew the product better than anyone and actually i think we ceded too much to so-called experts and actually we ended up having to change that design less than a year later and the sales increased and we changed it to something that wasn't as beautiful but it did sell better because it said what was on the tin Whereas what we had before was lovely, but... An advert, know, and, <laughs> yeah. basically an advert on a, on a top of ice cream. What I gathered from the last couple of questions there is that you were quite smart in the way that you tried to get things off the ground. So, you know, you, you mentioned that at one point you had £1.5p left in your account. You've gone to this agency to get some brand input together. You've managed to negotiate a deal that is therefore zero, well, not zero cost because of the net profit deal, but in cash, zero cost. I'm assuming there might have been some kind of similar negotiation with the manufacturer. Yeah, so just before that branding agency, um, Harry and I had gone to a manufacturer. They said, uh, well, have you got a brand? Have you got a team? Have you got finance? Have you got whatever? 
and you're, you're speaking to him <laughs> exactly and then went to branding team and they said well have you got a product have you got a factory etc no so it became evident pretty quickly we need to get them both on at the same time um and so not over proud of it but lied through our teeth uh, to say to one we had the other uh, at the same time and thank goodness they both said yes so it it was a, a white lie uh, and we did both get them on but again, it goes back to, you know, what can you offer people? I think you can't, nothing's for free and no one's going to be philanthropic with you. So it, with, with the factory, they could test certain things out with us that they might not want to do with their own brand. Uh, we could show them, we hoped that we would be breaking into or creating a new subcategory within ice cream. So I was explained to them that it's probably good if we are, if it works, that we are with them and they learn from us. Um, and from the product and from the uh, the insight that we get rather than we go somewhere else. And so it was a bit of a fear close there, but it worked. And there's also a significant element of them and other people we worked with being very good people. I think they got the warm and fuzzy out of helping two lads do something who hadn't got a clue what they were doing. So yeah, there's definitely an element of that as well. People being kind. Great lesson to be taken there and the, the simplest one, age old, but if you don't ask, you don't really get, do you? So um, making sure you, if you can see an opportunity, there's something that can be done there that's worth a shot either way and it looks like it worked out. And people work with people, mm. not with businesses. So you've got to build rapport. You've got to make friends. You've got, when, when you know, at this kind of stage, it's, it's really, really important um, and, and have people want to work with you. I think sometimes we look on social or whatever and see people, uh, some examples of people being quite brash and arrogant and it just does not work in the real world. People have got to enjoy working with you. Um, and I'm not saying people did enjoy working with us, but um, <laughs> we always try and do our best uh, in, in that area. Make it fun whenever we're collaborating on something or starting a project. How did you get from that point then to, you know, your first sale? I explained earlier about the the factory needing a certain volume to start up and it wasn't even worth them starting. So we knew we couldn't do the kind of traditional route of farmers markets and whatever else to to test things. That's how you're saying, like packaging, et cetera, uh, and the product uh, before going to the retailers. So we had to go straight to retailers. We had to go straight to the big supermarkets. And, and obviously there's a huge cost implication there as well. Uh, we're just trying to, to, to manufacture that much product for them. Uh, so how the question came, how do you get the retailer's attention and get them to you know, convince them to, to believe in you and your product when you've got no previous sales at all or experience? So I rang up Waitrose and tried to call them many, many times and never got through. Just the, um, the customer service line said, can I speak, speak to the ice cream buyer? No email buying at Waitrose. No one gets that email address. Um, so I did that many times and realized there was absolutely no point in me doing this anymore. So rang up Waitrose and, and, and said, uh, you know, like a, the 20th time, I said, oh my gosh, you wouldn't believe it. I just got, sorry, my name's Charlie um, and I've been questioning this amazing ice cream and uh, it's called this. And the waitress buyer just left me a voicemail um, and he said he wants me to call him back. But it, it crackled when he said his name. Can you tell me his name, please? Um, and then they probably could have gone on LinkedIn. But anyway, again, naivety. Um, and they told me his name and said, good luck. Uh, thank you so much. And then I twigged that it wouldn't be the same person who, to pick up if I called them back again, because it's probably a, quite a large customer service center. So I rang back and said, you know, with similar excitement and said, oh, my gosh, amazing. But it crackled. It, all his, num his number started with 07 and then it died. Um, can you tell me his mobile number? Richard begins. And, uh, and they gave me the rest of his mobile number. And now I had his mobile number and his name. So, and that's how we managed to speak to Waitrose, speak to the buyer, 
Um, obviously, he was a bit flummoxed with how I got his um, mobile number, especially when he heard from the customer service agent that put me through that he left a voicemail <laughs> for me. I, I just glossed over that and didn't actually answer when he asked what voicemail. But yeah, we managed to get in there. Harry and I went and pitched and they said, no, it tastes awful. It's a, <laughs> You haven't got anything. Um, go away and come back. And it took about 18 months, I think. Um, but we were never ready when we first went in to pitch. And at the point they were willing to take us, I think, is when we were ready for it as well. We finally got the brand, the product, et cetera, the finance ready. Took a while there. The normal route is definitely kind of market stalls and being able to sell very, very small volumes. But with a product like this, it was it was much more difficult to, to do that. And we, I guess it was a bit of overconfidence to go straight into a major retailer without having sold a single product before. So was Waitrose the first retailer that you guys were stocked in yeah waitrose was the was the first retailer um that 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 supported us and they they we thought that we'd maybe get into sort of 20 or 30 local stores um when they said that we had a listing and they said uh actually it's being ranged in 117 stores and then we thought okay great but now we need to finance a big production and uh and that was when we started looking at uh equity financing basically okay so now you're looking obviously now you need the funds to actually go and finance the, the production of this product where do where do you start in that situation so we had a meeting with an organization that funds small companies and it didn't fit right they wanted a huge amount of the equity before huge 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 for a tiny amount of money and, and fair play to them because we haven't sold anything yet so why on earth would they invest in us um, a consortium of really interesting people who could have helped enormously, but it was just too expensive and it didn't fit right with how they were wanting to take control of various elements. Uh, you know, me and Harry hadn't even, hadn't, as I say, hadn't sold anything yet and uh, didn't think it was necessary for other people to start to take control that early on. One day I was in the coffee shop beneath my flat, was giving out ice cream in there just because I, you know, I knew the coffee shop owners um, and just asking for immediate feedback. Uh, it was just before we launched into Waitrose. And one lady said, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Stay right here. So I, I did. And she leg, legged it out, um, went around the corner. Um, well, I now know she went around the corner to her house, um, lived very close by, came back in with her husband and said, this is my husband, Jeff, Jeff Lynn. He's the CEO of Cedars. I said, what's Cedars? And they said, uh, crowdfunding company. I said, what's crowdfunding? Uh, this, as I say, this would have been probably mid-2014. I think they'd funded or helped, helped fund just a couple of businesses at that point. So they were a real fledgling organisation as well. Um, Jeff was an absolute legend and talked me through an awful lot uh, about what crowdfunding was and why it would be useful for us. And this really fitted. Fast forward a little bit, it was starting to now get to the stage where, okay, we had the Waitrose order. And I think Ocado, Harry and I pitched Ocado as well. And that, I think, had come through as launching in a few months' time, both of them. So Harry brilliantly came on. I say brilliantly because... Uh, it wasn't i wasn't always assuming that he would um yes we we had the idea together yes we had done an awful lot of work together uh, as brothers all the way through and i knew it would never work if he didn't come on board ever harry's fantastic at what i'm really crap at so it was absolutely essential but i, just, I knew i just had to plow on regardless you know one of us at least had to keep paying his mortgage <laughs> that i was sometimes living under the roof of so harry came on board and then we uh, and we decided to the crowdfund uh, on cedars and it was January 2015. As, as Charlie said, we, we decided that crowdfunding was the best route. And I think um, 
for many consumer businesses, it's a really good route to go down because it enables people that like your product to also own a small part of it. But you've also got to realize that people that are putting in 10, 20, 100 or more pounds might might not fully understand uh, that they might not get it back. Um, so it's, you know, you have to be really careful and manage expectations. But um, yeah, in terms of the crowdfunding, um, again, I think a lot of businesses expect to just go onto a platform and then the money is just going to flow in and uh, it's not the case. And there's there's a lot of failed crowdfunding stories because people don't put all the work in. But um, yeah, we you know, we did a video to, to explain Oppo uh, and we basically contacted anyone and everyone that we thought might have any money or, or an interest and, and just said, look, if we're, we're raising money, would you be interested in owning a small scoop of Oppo? And uh, once we thought that, okay, we've probably got at least 50% of what we need, we then felt that given the sort of crowd mentality, once you're at sort of above that level, if you can get to that very quickly uh, in when you first launch a crowdfunding campaign, then you then find that the next 50% is much easier to come by um, because people look at it and think, well, they're already almost funded and therefore other people must think it's good. It's that classic social proof. Um, so that that's exactly what we did. We raised our target, which was 100 grand within uh, a couple of minutes, um, which at that point in 20, January 2015, it made us the fastest food and drink company to raise money through crowdfunding and uh, albeit a relatively small amount of money. We then went on to go for for three times that, and we did two subsequent raises with Cedars as well. And Andy Murray, the tennis player, came in on the second round, which was great. And uh, just as, a, as someone involved in a, on the crowdfund, that helped with PR as well. So uh, yeah, and, and I think you know, for anyone else considering crowdfunding, um, it's actually not as once you've once you've done the raise, it's providing it's been set up in the right way. You don't have to speak to, in our case, a thousand investors individually. It's all dealt with through one sort of central platform, and and the communication comes from there. So, um, yeah, it's worked really well for us. We're very grateful to to people to have invested, and and then a, a couple of years later, a larger investor came in and bought those people out, and he was from from the food industry, so it enabled us to, to move on to the next stage and get some some more expertise uh, on our board and get some more advice and help to grow Oppo further uh, as well as buying out you know a lot of our friends and family who put money in in, in good faith which was um, which was good for us crowdfunding was one way that you uh, were looking to raise but then there was another opportunity that you had to raise as well uh, via Dragon's Den and you'd been asked three times to go on Dragon's Den, I believe, before you actually went on. What had changed the fourth time you were asked? Yeah, so we um, we were asked, BBC called us up uh, a few times and asked if we would come on board. And we said no, because we'd raised, as Harry explained, via crowdfunding. And we didn't need the money. I think pretty much every time they called us, we just raised uh, each of the three rounds, as Harry said. And they said, what are you doing with your time then? We said, we're really just trying to tell as many people as we possibly can that this ice, about this ice cream, about why it's special and about where they can go and buy it. Uh, it's in supermarkets across the country, but it's desperately difficult to then speak to all the people we need to speak to. And they said, well, you're dickheads then. Like, maybe not in that kind of terminology. Um, it is the BBC after all. And they said, um, 
each episode goes out to about 4 million people. So if you want to tell people about the product, this is not a bad way of doing it. And we said, holy shit, you're right. Um, what are we talking about? Uh, well, come on. Um, but we went on, it ended up being a 12 minute advert to 4 million people. We were trending on, on Google UK as third most searchable term uh, in the UK for, for about three or four days afterwards. Sold out in Waitrose, Anacardo, which I think were the only two places we were stocked at that time. Uh, and it was incredible. It was really, really good for us. We went in because we didn't need the money we were working out. Again, it goes back to what can we give the BBC in that respect, or at least the viewers. And you've got to understand it's all about about, about it's entertainment. Like, obviously, I think people sometimes think it's too seriously. But but let's face it, Dragon's Den to business is like what Big Brother is to real life. Like it is, it is not reality. Um, it is all entertainment. And so I think you've got to go into the, uh, the studios knowing that. So we went in there not, to be honest, we can say this now, with totally wrong numbers, purposefully, because we didn't want a negotiation or, or a debate or our, our time on air to be consumed by, holy shit, that's a diabolical valuation, and, and you think you're going to do this and, and be slated like that. You know, we were going on there to tell people about our products and about our brand. So we made sure that it was um, appealing enough to the dragons to have a conversation about that, um, interesting enough to not have the entire conversation edited and cut out and uh, interesting enough to um, the viewers such that they might hopefully want to go and buy it. They didn't invest. They didn't like the product. They thought that our numbers were too low. We didn't tell them that we'd change them all, but it meant it, we didn't have a, yeah, a discussion about something that we didn't actually want to discuss, which was, I mean, the worst thing is you get, we all know what supermarket buyers are like and supermarkets in general, they negotiate like nobody on earth. It would have been, really bad idea for the you know when the dragon said how much does it you know cost you to manufacture a unit it would have been horrific for us to say the actual price so we didn't feel too bad about editing everything and changing everything for fabricated pricing but yeah it meant we didn't get a phone call the next day from from waitrose saying they are now offering us you know 25 percent less or something which i know has happened to other brands but it was an amazing experience for us it was one of those moments that that there's kind of a, a general curve hopefully upwards for many companies and it's um, it's not always ho as hockey stick as we all want, but this was definitely a, definitely a step up um, in, in our, our the upper journey into that point um, in the subsequent week after. It taught us an awful lot as well, and that's what we we're going in for it for. Taught us a lot. We'll move on to some uh, defining moments in your career. I mean, you've already highlighted the the way that the business started, but outside of the way that the business was founded, were there any memorable or defining moments that stick out to you that if they hadn't have happened? you wouldn't be where you are today. Harry coming on board. That's my first one. Um, we had a tiff in the car, brotherly tiff, driving down to our parents one weekend. And quite sensibly, Harry said, you know what, Charlie, I'm absolutely not coming on board. Like, this is a ridiculous idea. We, we, were, we, we weren't still our absolute best mates. But Harry was saying quite rightly that it, it could destroy that. Um, and, you know, we could argue more and whatever else. And so... He, he totally understandably said, I don't think this is a good idea. And and, and for me, that was pretty much the worst uh, day of my life until that point, um, because it, it all came crashing down because I knew it wouldn't work without Harry. So didn't, to be honest, think about it too much. I was convinced that I could change his mind. Um, so I didn't want to get too intense about it at that time. It was important just to, because it was a silly argument, I can't remember what it was about, but it was something about, about Oppo. And it was about a month later, Again, we were down at our parents. Um, we were kite surfing. Harry had a pretty big accident where he got lofted by the kite, got lifted up and then dropped onto the bow of a boat 
uh, a, very, a metal boat, a very short, sharp, pointy bow, um, and and really badly cut uh, his neck um, just below his chin, and knocked himself out as well, uh, and broken arm. Uh, but we didn't know that until about two weeks later, after he got back from hospital, his arms cracked at dinner, um, and uh, I was in a bit of a bit of pain. But anyway, when we were, we were doing an arm wrestle, <laughs> he went to hospital and did all the CT scans and various other things, and, and got sent home uh, after quite a long time. And they said he cannot look at. Uh, he can't really work. He can't look at any screens. He can't, you know, literally his brain needs to heal. He's, he's concussed and he's all kinds of things. And so I remember one night I spoke to mum and dad and, and, and essentially, because we're a very, very close family and I, and I wanted their opinion on, on this. I said, do I have your blessing basically to continue com- trying to convince Harry to come on board? What, what do you think about it? We really respect their opinion, of course, and, and wanted, I wanted to hear what they thought. And in the end, they were like, yeah, let's do it. So... Harry, Benone, Tim, poor bugger. Um, the next time we were together as a family, I think it was the next day, uh, and we set about him about, about convincing him to come over, uh, which worked, um, and that was one of the best days um, of of, uh, of Oppo to that day. So yeah, that was that was one of the big pinnacle moments then. So then Harry quit his job uh, and came on board full time very soon after that. From your perspective, Harry, what was it that pushed you over over the edge and had you join? FOMO, pretty much. <laughs> You know, it's. I think it's feels like a risk sometimes, and you're going to lose a lot. But I mean, it's not really. You know, I think for anyone, actually, I think it's 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 even easier if you if you don't have kids and if you don't have dependents, and if it doesn't work out, you can just go back into another job. And uh, yeah, it's a cliche, but it's it's a cliche because it's true um, that you you tend to regret the things you don't do more than the things you do do. And I think we could all do with taking a leap of faith. And of course, I had been involved to to a certain extent. Um, it was more just, you know, quit the full time job. And I think all of us, I was reflecting on this on the tube in the way in today. A lot of us do need a push and do need to be pushed outside of our comfort zone. And and that's why sometimes you, it's quite hard to start a business. I know some of your previous podcast guests have done it by themselves, and all the more respect to them um, because. It's good to have someone that's going to be, you know, a bit more of a rule breaker or, or push things harder and be a little bit more unreasonable about what's possible and uncompromising. Um, whereas I tend to be a bit more perfectionist and want to get everything right in my little world before I venture out of my burrow. Um, whereas Charlie's much more make it up to go along, you know. So so Charlie needs someone to get things right operationally, but but he will go and hunt for opportunities and, and find those and and I think you know if, if anyone listening is sort of trying to think of starting a business or, or growing it then it helps to have someone that's very different to yourself to, to do that yeah absolutely hi I remember saying one of the things to you um was when I was discussing with you when you should come over and quit your job very you know really good job well-paid job um as head of marketing money for, for JV with Google which I also knew would be really useful to Oppo we were talking about the risk of coming over and I was saying that it was more risky to not to not come over and that's what I felt about why I started in the first place it was more risky for me personally to be in a job I didn't enjoy than come over have probably you know it wouldn't be wouldn't be an easy ride it wouldn't be it'd probably be quite a stressful ride um especially to begin with setting things up but at least we'd learn things we'd have fun um and, and that was two things I wasn't doing in my job beforehand so it was only it was hugely risky to stay where I was personally um and uh, and not come over and start something new so that's what I told Harry as well. Yeah, as Harry said, that's why I was probably FOMO driven as much as anything else. Couldn't really see the downside. So 
over your time since obviously launching Oppo, uh, what would you say are the biggest lessons that you've learned since that time? One of them is to bring on the right people as early as possible and to try and bring on people that are better than yourself, which is very easy for me and Charlie. Um, but uh, it's it's really to try and get get good people in those senior roles and you know fewer better people, i.e. You know, more experienced, more attuned with your values. And talking of which, you know, actually writing out our values, I've got them on the wall next to me, and being able to sort of test people in in conversation against those values to see how they answer particular questions is is very helpful because we have worked with a number of people at Oppo, and uh, as we've grown, some people have have inevitably left, and um, you know the big the big lesson has been take much longer to to hire. And then when you do, you know, really appreciate those people. And and when we did hire slightly more senior operations and finance and sales people, our business has has grown as a result. Uh, so that's been good. And being just really clear on on our goals and our objectives, and and being focused on what we're not doing as as much as as what we are doing. Um, the, the, I think the final lesson as well is some decisions are quite hard to make, and they might be uncomfortable, and if you're starting to have a gut feel about that, then just to do it sooner rather than later. So sometimes, you know, it might be around people or it might be around cutting a particular product that maybe is not doing that well. And just the sooner you do it, uh, the, the, the better for everyone, really. Just to add to that, do you have any principles that you've found uh, or that you've tried to stick by throughout the building of Oppo? all throughout your personal lives as well. Do you have any principles for success that you try to stick by? Mm. I've got one actually, which is around, remember why you're doing it and don't get distracted. Um, I think everyone has a reason why they start something or why they choose a new job or, or, or whatever it is they decide to do. You have a reason that spurs you to want to do that. In the past, I've seen you know, in myself and other people as well, um, a, a distraction comes in down the line and you get veered off one one way or another. So, for example, I was speaking to someone after a talk I did uh, a while ago, and they were saying about you know how their their inspiration for setting up was uh, that they wanted to have more time with their family um, because their previous job was in the city and they worked mental hours. Uh, they never had any control over their, uh, their, their their hours, their time. Um, their boss would just say, right, we need this done on Monday, and it would be like a Friday night. Um, so they'd have to work all, all through the weekend, etc. So they were like, stuff this, I'm going to set my own thing up. And w- with one of the, uh, the overarching aims is to, to give, to make sure I have time with my family and, and the same goes for any employees I end up hiring. But then down the line, it got, it got busy. Uh, it was doing very well, this business. And it realized this, this person realized that they were having, they were spending a lot less time with their family. Um, and so they got distracted and, and hadn't stayed true to the reason they set the business up in the first place. Um, and so I think that that kind of, that's just one example. It can go the other way, of course. It can be many reasons why you decide to do something, whether it's set up a company or anything else. But I think it's really important to try and hold. If it changes, that's absolutely fine, and, and it's you know absolutely is probably probably uh, expected to change. But but stay true to why you did something in the first place, and and don't get veered off. Um, don't let the business or the project run you. Um, I think it's important to, to take ownership of it. Associated with that, um, the main principle for the business are. Our purpose is is to create feel-good indulgence that's better for health and planet. And as we go about doing things as a business, whether it's in product development or or marketing or or, or any of our other activities, any business really should should go back to the to that purpose. And yeah, for us, it's 
feel good indulgence that's better for health and planet and that's what's on the wall and that's what we try and that's what's on people's screensavers and uh and and that's that's really what we do okay and the final question i've got for you is is more centered around the people that have been useful or uh, helpful supportive any of these things throughout the journey of starting up so um you'll often hear it referred to as like a little black book that a lot of uh, business founders uh, might have whether like i said whether they might have been specifically helpful at a certain time maybe in business or outside um who is in your guys's little black book do you want a list of names and phone numbers if you've got <laughs> <laughs> people that we, we we've been hugely lucky uh, I know Harry's got got a point of view on this as well, um, but we we've been hugely lucky that there's been an enormous amount of people that have helped us through the way, uh, and and we definitely wouldn't still be afloat if they hadn't. For me, it's people that that are in it for the right reasons, and and, and whose demand uh, or kind of reason why they are there, I think I can legitimately fill. Um, so by that I mean, I had one person before who wanted to invest, um, and I was asking. And so, so I so I was asking why, uh, what's what's and you're saying well, I want to become chairman. You need a chairman, and okay, why do you think we need that? And this is very early on, um, and it went down the line of us. I don't think this is Uber, uh, kind of not not relevant, but but I don't think we're in sync here. This is not going to be a fun relationship. And again, it goes back to for me why why I was most motivated to start the business, and and so declined that even though we were um, we had pennies in the bank um, at that stage. And then met somebody else who did end up becoming our chairman, who was an absolute bloody, he still is, an absolute legend. And was super in sync with what we were trying to create. So, so that's the first rather vague answer to your question. The second is people that where I haven't got a blimmin' clue, uh, but they have uh, for me personally. And again, it was like my brother. Um, he was in my little black book and now he's, he's he, and then he joined over um, just before we launched. So I think you've really got to know what your experience where your experience lies uh, and if you have zero then that's also absolutely fine um, but what you can add what you can offer and be, be even more aware of what you can't and what you're rubbish at and what you don't enjoy and then work very hard to uh, to fill in those gaps uh, find people who can come on for the right reasons and uh, and help you in your in your areas where you lack knowledge yeah absolutely and um i'd say that if most people are not self-made, um, even if they say they are, and we are far from it. Um, we, you know, we're a product of the support we've been given, the advice we've been given. We don't have any sort of formal mentors, but um, yeah, we're able to speak to other peer brands and and just be be listening more than we're talking, hopefully, so that we can pick up advice. And I'd say that you know, if Charlie mentioned you know, chairman, and uh, if people are looking for people on their on their board or um, coaches and mentors and, and that sort of thing and people to be involved in the business I think that I think the acid test is is does this person listen more than they speak um, because otherwise it, it feels very nice like I'm doing now to to try and dish out advice uh, and and talk for ages and actually it's 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 the great people that that spend time listening to what you're saying and then know the right questions to ask to help you get to the answer I think that's that's very powerful to bring those sort of people on onto your team Harry, Charlie, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Is there anywhere that any listeners can find either yourselves or Oppo for, for more information? Yeah, if you search Oppo Ice Cream or, or Oppo Brothers on, on any social channel uh, on our website, then you can see where we're stocked. We're, in the UK, we're, you can find us in most Tesco, Sainsbury's, Asda, 
um, but we're also in a number of independents like uh, Whole Foods, uh, even Harrods. Um, and then uh, for any listeners abroad, we're also in uh, Albert Hein in the Netherlands and uh, quite a number of, of German stores. So that's a big big part of our expansion too. So yeah, if you just search uh, Oppo, Oppo Brothers or Oppo Ice Cream, don't just search Oppo because then you'll, um, you'll end up with a mobile phone and they, they don't taste very nice. <laughs> Thanks so much for, for having us. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Founders. If you liked the content in this podcast, you can get new content from a new founder every week by following us on all podcast apps. 